Be Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Hey everybody, Doc Brian here and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Today I have with me a very special guest. I met him on TikTok, but soon became a close friend. Today I have with me Joshua Broom, and we're just glad to have you with us here today, Joshua. I am glad to be here. So do you normally go by Joshua or do people call you Josh? Well, growing up as a, a, a young Southern man, as you would know, uh, if I would say anything other than Joshua, I would get a smack on the back, on the back of the head. So uh, I, I always say Joshua just to honor my mom. Uh, I know I'm in trouble. Um, so you, 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 you like my middle name, I know, because uh, my middle name's Luke. So mm-hmm. if, I hear Josh, if I hear Joshua Luke, I know I'm in trouble. Joshua, I'm good. But um, any anytime that I'm in the presence of uh, anyone, they ask my name. I always say Joshua just because that's what my that's what my mom would want me to do. So gotcha. Yeah, you have to live in the South to respect the thought that if your middle name is used by an adult, that you have you have really done something wrong. Yeah. yeah. yeah if you hear your if you hear your last name, you should probably run. Yeah. Well, at, at my house, if you hear your middle name, you better run. You know, you better yeah. you better get going. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. so you were born in North Carolina. Is that right? Yeah. So I was, I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, but that was because the town I grew up in. So I'm from South Carolina, but we lived on the state line and the town was so small that it absolutely did not have any kind of uh, medical facilities. So we would have, we'd have to drive to Charlotte and that was the closest place. So that's where I, I was born in Charlotte, but I grew up on essentially the state line. So in, but in South Carolina. So I've been to Charlotte a couple of times and I don't have any desire to go back. Uh, it's, <laughs> it, it's become a pretty big city. Like, yeah. you know, from, from living in Los Angeles for a long time and uh, spending a lot of time in New York and stuff, it's like, it's not as big as that, but I mean, it's, it's a, it's a pretty large town. So what was life growing up in the home? Did you have a brother or sister? So growing up, so my mom had me when she was 16. So we lived with her parents so my grandparents and um, so it was myself, my mom, my grandparents, and then my mom's two brothers and her sister. You all lived together? Yeah, just for, for a short period of time. So when I was born, um, like they were, they were pretty close in age. So they were all in high school. So, you know, by the time I was six or seven, everyone was gone except. So my two uncles had, you know, moved out and, you know, went to college or whatever. And my aunt was still there. So it was my mom and my, my mom and my aunt and then my grandparents until I was about seven. And then for a really short period of time, uh, my mom was married to someone. Okay. So did, did your father not live with, with y'all? My mom having me at 16, she, you know, it, it was just a situation where I don't ever remember it being like a situation where he like, I don't want to be around you or anything. Like, I don't ever remember any conflict. I just remember, you know, just like, black and white he's not going to be part of your life okay so what about the stepdad then 
when he come into play? Yeah. So my mom got married or when I was about seven and, um, the awesome thing that came from that was my brother, Michael, and he's awesome. We moved out and we lived with him. Uh, we bought like a trailer and we lived with him for like three and a half, almost four years, but he was very abusive, alcoholic, drug addict. One of the most vivid memories I remember is he was outside and he was trying to get in the house and like my mom wouldn't let him in. I looked out the window and he had this like tube and he was he was ciphering gas like he was sucking gas out like into this tube so he could put it in this can so he could put it in his car um and then he was like trying to get in the house it was like that was the only time that like we as children were like afraid but more so it was like verbal abuse habit happening like in the bedroom with closed doors my mom would have black eyes and bruises on our arms and she would just say you know she bumped into something and I was young and naive and really didn't understand what was going on until later in life. So you'd never witnessed any of the physical altercation. You just heard the the verbal. Right. Yeah. Nothing ever happened in front of me. Okay. As far as your brother, Michael, being that that was his biological father, was there ever any abuse there towards him? I don't believe so. I mean, I, I just think it was just, I, re I remember one time where he, like, he was so drunk, he put like beer and in the baby bottle and tried to give it to him. And he just like, didn't, he's just like, this is gross and didn't drink it, you know? Um, so just neglect and just, um, just being hammered and like all the time, like I, that's the only thing that I really remember. But the thing that was most damaging, I think for me was witnessing the pain that was inflicted on my brother in, in an emotional and a mental construct just because like I from the gate I rejected the fact that he was my dad like you are not my dad you know it's like I don't have a dad you're not my dad whatever you know that like we never had like we never fought or anything like that I think he disciplined me a few times I, I remember this one time where I, I deserved it I had a can of Aquanet in a lighter and I was you know trying to burn down half a forest behind our house like trying to burn up like wasp nests or something like that. So, I mean, I deserved it, but I don't remember anything like crazy happening with him. Just like him being like always like very inebriated in some, in some capacity. But my brother, as he started, as my mom started, like she's, you know, filed for separation and they got divorced and things like that. I just remember him saying that he was going to do stuff with my brother and just like, a continual pattern of him saying he was going to do something and my brother having expectations because he missed him and him not showing up just time after time, after time, after time for years. Um, and I think that that really left some emotional scars with him and it's really tough for him to let people in. So you're like seven, eight years old or excuse me, seven, eight years older than your brother, stepbrother. Correct. Okay. Correct. Do you and your stepbrother still have contact with each other today? Yeah, I talk to him um, not every day, but several times a week. He's a genetics professor at Clemson University. So somehow he turned my mom into a Clemson fan, which that's the only thing I'll hold against him because <laughs> we, grew, we grew up loving you know the Gamecocks. And then he went to Presbyterian for his undergrad, but he got his master's and his PhD at Clemson. And now, he, now his, his dream job was to, to teach there. He taught at uh, Indiana University before that, but 
he's a good dude. He, he's got some, uh, a lot of trust issues, obviously. And I pray for him daily just cause like as a follower of Christ myself, it's like, I think there's a lot of wounds that causes him to want to accept everyone. And it's just, just a tough situation. Sure. So in high school, what were you, were you involved into sports or you just the, the cool kid on the block? What were, what were you? I was your typical, you know, meathead, uh, you know, played all the sports always, you know, was messing around with girls. And I was the, my, uh, my family had a little lake house about 20, 25 minutes away from where we were. And I would throw parties out there. And, you know, I was, I was that guy, you know, I, the party was at my house and your typical knucklehead, you know, I, I didn't do any drugs, but I started drinking probably, you know, 15, 16, like pretty regularly, like, like on the weekends partying. And, but I played sports. Um, I played everything pretty much, but like basketball was the thing that I took most serious. And I had the opportunity to play in college for a very short period of time. I found out that defense was essential. I just couldn't just shoot three pointers. That was, that was not helpful for the team. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, uh, I interviewed Welly Jackson. I don't know if you know who he is. He, uh, was one of the writers for the last OGs on orange is the new black. And, uh, okay. he was trying to go to college on a basketball scholarship and he and I both come to the conclusion that we don't understand why basketball is such a running sport. I mean, why do you have to go to the opposite end of the court to do exactly what you have just done just differently? So I kid around and tell people I played basketball until I figured out it was running the sport. And, um, <laughs> you can look at me and tell I don't run anywhere. So in school, you were the, we'll say the popular kid through parties at the lake house. What give you the inclination that that's what you needed to do or who you wanted to be in, in throwing those parties? I, I can remember from like 12 and 13, just like desperately wanting the attention of girls and like that, just like needing to be accepted, needing to be affirmed. Like it's one thing, like, you know, as far as like, uh, like my strength finder or whatever, like achievers, my number one thing, but it really just like that achiever, achiever mentality really fed the insecurities that I had because I desperately wanted to be affirmed and I desperately wanted to feel loved and I definitely wanted to feel accepted. And my mom gave me all those things, but just growing up, like not having any kind of male leadership and it caused me to like, I had friends, but I would, I was always the guy to blow people off, not return texts, not return calls, like. Um, make plans and then, you know, bail out last minute. And honestly, up until a few years ago, and it's still something I struggle with. It's, it's so hard for me to like, I have to fight hard to be consistent and I have to fight really hard um, to be committed when it comes to a relationship. And I, and I think that comes from just uh, that feeling of rejection. That feeling of rejection, do you think is there because you've never had that male role model of what the relationship looked like from that side? Yeah. I mean, I think that it was, it's twofold. It was not having it. And also these are like illusions of, I guess like my own expectations, like in my head of what like a father son relationship should look like or could look like. So that was something that I fantasized about. Like, you know, if I had a dad, you know, my life would be like this. And um, like, I don't know all these things, and like, for me, it was like, I didn't learn to ride a bike until I was like 13. And I just got so like 
ticked off that I didn't know how to ride a bike. So I just took my bike up a really steep hill and I just like ate it <laughs> until I figured it out. And, you know, just like not knowing anything about cars or tools or how to fix things. It was just like something that was really frustrating for me, especially like growing up in like, like a country, like redneck town. Like my grandpa, like taught me like everything there is to know about fishing and like hooking up a boat and stuff like that and driving a stick and all that stuff. But like, they were just like, you know, it was just like my grandpa, he loved to fish. And when like, when you like, when he, when I say he loved to fish, like there was nothing else. Like he went fishing pretty much every day for the entire time I've, I've known in my life. And, um, that's, that's what he loved and that's what he wanted to do. But other than that, just like, I, like I had a hard time, like trying to figure out like, who am I? And then underneath that, who am I as a man? And then underneath that, like, how can I have relationships with other men? Just because like, it, it was it was just really confusing to me my whole life. And it was something that caused frustration. And it's like, I feel like when you're frustrated or when you feel um, confused, uh, the your your actions sometimes are a catalyst of your emotions, you know? So would it be fair to say that there was this constant internal identity conflict? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like the partying, the, I wanted to throw the biggest parties. I wanted to score the most points, you know, not because I wanted to win or not because I wanted a relationship because I wanted people to perceive me as being, you know, popular or, or feel affirmed in some way. Like that's something I just like desperately sought after. So tell me of a time while you were younger, this before graduation of high school of something that took place where you really received the affirmation that you were looking for. So not our head coach, but our assistant coach, um, his name is Bill Blatney. And he was actually, um, like when, you know, we'll, we'll get into my story later on, but, um, like when my life fell apart and I kind of got myself back together and like, I ended up like with all the things that I have now, like he was the first person that like I thought to call, he talked to me like man to man and just like really affirmed me like as a person and just really told me like that I had something to offer and I, and I was valuable, like not the things that I did, like me as a person was valuable. And that's, I guess that's something I never really heard before. And I just remember that moment and I'll never forget it. And he's just someone that, you know, outside of him coaching me in basketball, you know, we didn't have a lot of conversations, but that caused like him and my mom to like have this bond. Um, you know, he, cause he would always like ask how I was doing and things like that. And just, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think like in that moment, just him sitting me down and just saying like, you know, I know that, you know, you, you don't, you don't have the, the family dynamic that literally everyone else has on this basketball team. And I understand that, um, that that's probably hard for you. And I just want to tell you that like, it's not your fault and affirm you as a person. People with that achiever personality, that validation that they're looking for isn't validation in what they have done, but rather validation who they are. Uh, oh yeah. As opposed to a someone who has a harmonizer personality, they need validation in what they've done, not who they are. So right. it, it's very interesting, and uh, how all of that takes place, and how this coach knew how to feed you psychologically, if you will. So, uh, moving from high school, you graduated. Did you go to college? Did you say on a basketball scholarship? Well, yeah, I, I didn't have a scholarship, but I 
I, I did play. And so it was Francis Marion University. So I was just going to be on the team and join a fraternity. And like, none of it I took seriously. Like I saw from the, from the gate that like, okay, I'm not going to be receiving any minutes playing on this team. You know, everyone is so much more athletic than me, so much more well-rounded. I was an above average shooter. And like, that's why I was there. And, you know, I was, I was a zone buster, if you will, you know. Um, if you if you play two three zone, you know don't leave me on the wing because I'm gonna you know I'm gonna put up thirty points. But other than that, I'm useless. <laughs> but I, I joined a fraternity, and I I feel like that was really good for me. But what coincided with me joining a fraternity was a even more partying, even more like seeking after like being the popular guy, you know, doing the most this like during my freshman year, like there was like a pledge auction is like making sure like I was the one that like was auctioned off at the most money, um, hooking up with the most girls, trying to drink the most beer, just an idiot, you know, just. So was there, did you feel a certain level of validation being able to get into the fraternity? I did like, it was a good feeling uh, more so like not get into it, but like I felt that a group of men accepted me as a man opposed to, a group of people accepted me because of this. So like going back a little bit, like I started modeling when I was like 15 and like, that was another source of like, you know, I was very arrogant in some regards because I didn't have to audition for a lot of things that I was just a guy. Like if it was, if there were 10 people that looked like me, like I knew I probably didn't even need to show up at the audition. I would just get the job. Like that went really well for me. And like, I was very arrogant about that. But again, like it was a, it was just an underlining thing where it's like another thing where if someone is going to affirm me about like my looks or, or, or something like that, like it was an insecurity masked with affirmation that wasn't really making me feel better. It was just covering up a very deep wound. Right. And, and we find that though, in, in people who are in, the industry of modeling and acting that they have this deep wound that they're trying to cover up with validation of other people when that validation at its best is superficial. Yeah. And so we see that kind of pouring into, to these people. So moving from college, what led to your move towards, was it Los Angeles? Yeah. So I was having a lot of success modeling and honestly, I, I wasn't really trying. Like I was, like my agent at the time, her name was Donna Ehrlich, and she believed in me so much. And she gave me first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and hundredth chances because I would screw something up. I wouldn't be somewhere I was supposed to be. I would say I would do something. I wouldn't be there. But somehow she would she would smooth talk it out, and I would stay in like the good graces of a designer or a, a, a shoot or, or whatever I was doing. And uh, about two and a half years into college, I'm just like, like, this is fine, but like, I don't know what I want to do. I love modeling. I, I love like acting. Like I started like, you know, I, I did a little bit of theater and I was like, I like this, like theater is really hard. I don't want to do that, but I like the acting. I like, I like like the idea of like a script and like portraying a character and stuff like that. But like theaters, theaters, a different animal. It's hard. Anyone that's successful in that genre, like hats off to you. I guess I was like still trying to figure out myself. I just knew like, I didn't know like what I wanted to do. Like as a professional, I just wanted to like live in that lane where I was just doing like 
artsy creative stuff as far as like if it was commercials or if I could get roles like in movies or like doing modeling or, or whatever, whatever it was like in that lane is what I wanted to do. And like a few people told me like, sure. Like the thing is like the, the jobs that pay enough for you to like make a substantial income more often than not, they're going to go with the guy. They don't have to fly out somewhere. So um, if all the jobs are in New York, Miami and Los Angeles, um, they're probably going to call one of the thousand people who are already in New York, Miami, or Los Angeles. And I thought about it. And for some reason, it made sense to me to sell my Jeep and you know, drop out of college and hop on the, the first flight I could find to LAX. And so when you got there, essentially homeless with everything that you owned in your pockets, yeah, where did you go from there? So for some reason, I thought it was more important for me to like, get photos done and like meet with agents and like uh like go to auditions and stuff like that then like have somewhere to live because that's just how i thought and i i stayed in a very nice hotel for about 15 days and then all of a sudden i realized that my bank account was overdrawn and i could not stay at the hotel anymore i was like what do I do? Because <laughs> you know? like, I'm not in the situation where I could just like call my mom and she's going to like, give me some cash, like not going to happen. Like if she, if she had it, absolutely. She would give it to me. Um, and she probably would have like figured out a way if, if I, if I would have been in that dire situation, but I was just like, I'm not going to burden her with this. She's done enough for me. Um, she's already like, like she never said that she was, but I mean, she fought really hard for me to like, be able to have the opportunities I did. And like, I just, I felt like I'd let her down in some ways. And like, I have to like prove myself that um, I'm going to be successful while I'm out there. So I just have to figure it out myself. So you were like 20, 21 years old at this time, 21, about to be 22. And then I just like met, like I met like a random dude and he was like, I told him like what was going on. He's like, well, you can just crash at my place until you figure something out. And he just the, the nicest dude. His name's Khalil. And he like he was like one of like five people who were living in this house and they were all like struggling like actors and stuff. And he was like, well, you know, me and this other guy, we uh, we work at this uh, this place called Saddle Ranch. If you want to like go, I could probably get you a job there. And I went to the interview and I, I was like, you know, I guess I need some cash. And I ended up working there um, in addition to like doing like gigs every once in a while. but. Made a little bit of cash and made enough cash where in in Los Angeles they understand I guess in the, in that in that part of town where I was living that if we can get you in here you'll you'll maybe pay your rent so it's like your first month was like your first month was free or whatever as long as you signed like a thirteen month contract or something like that so I had enough money to like just cut on utilities and stuff and like finally like move into a place so that's kind of what happened so what exactly is Saddle Ranch. So Saddle Ranch is like in, so it's the place it's, it's been, it's uh, a restaurant slash bar. It's been in a ton of movies, but ultimately it's a, like a, a Western type bar in the middle of uh, West Hollywood. That's on, it's on Sunset Boulevard. It's across the street from um, House of Blues. And that's where like all of the young adults were because that was the one place you could get in if you weren't 21. So like all the like 19, 20 year olds that wanted to party, if you would go in there and like order food, you could get in. So it was like, it was a restaurant until about 10 30. And all of a sudden it just became this like 
crazy bar and it had a mechanical bull in the middle of it. So it was your typical downtown Charlotte, North Carolina bar. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so you were able to work there until you were, uh, till you got your own place. Yeah. And so what, where did you go from there? So I was working there for a while. Everything was going good. I was making like, honestly, I was making really good money working there. Like my mom worked in a restaurant her whole life. So I knew everything there is about waiting tables and just like, you know, just service in general. That's just like who my mom is. And that's something that I'm good at. So I'm good at, you know, reading people and telling them, you know, what they want to hear and, you know, just like treating them well. So I got good tips. So I was making you know, three, $400 a night, like waiting tables. I was making decent money and things were going well. And I started like hanging out with a girl and she was actually like from North Carolina and, and like everything was going pretty good. And then there was this group of girls that was sitting outside at um, like, there was like a patio that like wrapped around um, outside. And I was out there and I was talking to this group of girls and um, they were like, have you ever thought about being an actor? I was like, actually, <laughs> actually I am an actor. I'm so full of crap. But they were like, no, I'm like an adult actor. I'm like, I don't know how old you think I am, but I am an adult. <laughs> Completely and totally naive to what they were asking. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, I graduated with 84 people. Like, I mean, I am clueless. Like, even though I had success modeling, like, honestly, I was always like this to a certain degree. Like, I was always, like, so self-absorbed. I didn't notice the things around me, you know? But they asked me this question. They were like, it is porn, dude. We're talking about porn. I was like, oh, no, never thought about doing that. They're like, do you want to? I was like, yeah. What do you, what, what kind of question is that? They're like, no, we're serious. Like, do you want to meet with our agent? I was like, your agent? Because like, I didn't know anything about that industry. So I was like, agent, I was like, that's for like legit stuff, you know, like, but I was like, sure, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll meet with this guy. I'll meet with your agent, whatever. And I go to meet with this guy the next day. And I thought for sure I was going to roll up on like the Motel 6 and it was going to be like this guy in his underwear, like you know, at, at this Roach Motel or something like that. But I pull up to this like Megaplex and I go in this like separate garage and there's nothing but like Jaguars and Porsches and Ferraris in there. And I go up this elevator that has like, there's, there's a guy in a suit in the elevator, like I'm going up with. And I walk into this like huge office that he has like at the end of this long hallway and it's this, this bald English guy. He's like, hello. <laughs> I'm like, I was like, hey, man, <laughs> What's, what is it? What's going on? He quit. I think he quickly picked up on like how insecure I was and how he also said like he didn't manipulate me in any way. But he saw that like if he if he could turn a buck off of me that he was about to do it. And he's like, hey, if you can actually perform there's not a lot of guys in the industry that are good looking and there's not a lot of guys at all that have any acting experience and the and the whole like adult industry was like starting to um there was this wave of like making these big productions with these like big budgets and you know they had scripts and they were like parodies of movies and things like that and it's like man if you can do this you'll be the guy He's like, if you can, if, as long as you can perform, you can be as famous as you want. You can make as much money as you want. And I was like, I'll think about it. But like internally, I was like, sign me up, you know, I'm like, but like inside I was like, ah. 
And then as soon as I got home, I was like, there's no way I'm going to do this. Like, I'm not going to do this. And they, were, and they sent a town car to pick me up to take me to get tested. I was like, well, I've never had an STD test. Probably would be good. Because I, I probably have hooked up with who knows how many girls. Probably a good thing. I was like, sure, let's, let's go get this test. So I got a full STD and AIDS test. And it was supposed to come back by the next morning at 10 o'clock. And that's when I was going to do the shoot. It didn't come back. So I couldn't do the shoot. And I was just like, oh, that's weird. And that was one of about a billion times um, that God was like, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do it. Here's your way out. Don't do it. And I was as hard headed as could be. So I was just like, I'll just wait it out. And the next day it came back and everything was good. And I showed up and they were like, take this pill if, if you if you feel like you need it and, or or not. He's like, I'd probably bite it in half. I was like, what is it? He's like, it's Viagra. I was like, I don't think I need that. But if you say so. And um, instead of biting it in half, I took the whole thing and I sat there. And, you know, next thing I know, cameras were rolling. And next thing I know. I had done it. And next thing I know, like, honestly, I felt like it had been five years and I had done a thousand movies. In that initial tryout, it wasn't just like you were with someone else. It wasn't like a solo audition. Oh, no, this was. So that was the thing that the way my adult career started was not like anyone else's has ever started from my understanding. So from everything I've ever heard back then, it was like, you know, guys have to do like, solo things it'll make sure like you can do this and you can finish and then like you know like amateur stuff like where you hold the camera like my first one was like there was camera a camera b camera c full lighting crew a studio uh, a boom guy you know like it it was just as big as any like movie set i was on and i was just like holy crap and, and that's the only kind of stuff that like i ever did like i I don't want to say that I was lucky, but like there was some really gnarly stuff that was going on that most people had to go through to get to where I was that I didn't have to do. How awkward was it to be taking part of this with all of these people in a room with you? It was weird. It was weird, man. Like in the, the girl, like in my head, I was like, like, this is going to be awesome. There was nothing about it. that was awesome. Like the girl, like was older and like if if like if you could picture in your head how you think it's gonna go just like take everything that you were thinking and flip it around and make it the opposite and that's how it went from i'm not going to say from my experience but from experience uh porn is very unrealistic oh yeah uh as to as to what you would find you you won a couple of awards though within the adult industry, didn't you? I was nominated for Performer of the Year three times, one at once. Um, one, um, like there's like awards for everything, so like best like couple like couple scene, like best acting, best supporting actor. And and you were in over a thousand movies, I guess. Is that what you call them? Films, movies, whatever. Yeah, I mean, because like there's there's different kinds. So like Gonzo is is like you walk into a room and there's a concept, but there's not a script. And then um, like films would be, you know, there it's a, it, there's a script and there's generally five scenes in a, in five sex scenes in a movie, but there's a movie and it has a script and a start and a finish. In, in looking at, at your, um, 
your resume, I guess, is the way you would put it. You, you performed in all types of pornography. Yeah. How did that make you feel as an individual once the, the production was over? Like, were you getting a high off of it? Were you, I can't believe I just did that. Or where did you fall into those categories? Like for me, like, I hate to say this, but like as an achiever, like for me, it was like to be almost like automated and like machine-like. I pride myself to a certain degree. It's like when, like when the director would say, okay, I need you to finish in the next 30 seconds. Most people, you would have to, you'd have to cut and then, you know, get yourself there and they would roll and then that would happen. Yeah. And I could just like, you know, do it. And just like, like stuff like that, like allowed me to work more and allowed me to, to have success. But then I started to put that pressure on myself. So like, I, I didn't really take a, a ton of like erectile dysfunction medication at first. And then I started taking Levitra, which like Levitra like doesn't really like help you like maintain it just like causes like you to have like more like sensitivity or whatever. And then I started taking Vagra and then towards the end, um, especially when I crossed over to that other genre, I started taking Caberjack. So Caberjack is, you know, ultimately uh, you have a paraplegic person who wants to be intimate with their spouse. They don't have any feelings, so they can't get an erection. So there's a chemical that's injected in the caverns of you know, your penis and it's going to be erect, whether you're reading the newspaper or you're doing, you know, whatever. Um, and that was scary. That was really scary because there were several times that I, I was taking it myself and I didn't really know what I was doing. I took too much and I had to like, I heard stories that you had to go get like spliced and get it drained. And I, I sat there like in my bed, like with my feet up over my heart, like for hours, just like, hoping that it went away. So you were actually injecting yourself with this medicine? Sometimes. So so that there were, so especially like in the other genre, like with the, like the guy on guy kind of stuff, mm -hmm. like in, in that genre, like there are some directors that like, they would make you do it, but like, do you want it? And then they would have like someone on set, like inject you. And, and I'll just go in and from this, um, physiological side, when a man is receiving anal sex, it is very difficult for him to keep an erection. And so for the sake of the production, you're saying they would do that so that the man could stay erect on the receiving end. A, lo a lot of people would, but like some directors, like, you know, it was like, not like you have to do this, but like, this is what we do like on my set. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So you weren't made to, but you were pressured in some ways to do that. Uh, I wouldn't even say pressured. It was just like, hey, we all uh, drink beer here. So I'm going to give you a beer if you want one, but we're all going to drink one. And that's just what we do here. Almost like passive aggressive. Mm -hmm. So uh, once again, in looking at your resume, um, I won't call it gay porn. We'll just call it male on male. Because you and I have, have talked personally about how, you know, you can do those type of sexual acts without being identified as being homosexual, that, that a lot of it is just for the money, you know, and, and we will find ourselves even outside of the adult industry doing things for money that we would have never thought we would be doing. But when you crossed over into that, is that where the drug use, illicit drug use really began to amp up? Oh yeah, absolutely. And like, for, for me, like, I don't know, like I try to remember exactly what I was thinking, like, because like 
companies would always like try to get me to do like male and male companies would like try to get me to like work for them. And they would offer me like, you know, here's, you know, 10, 20 grand to do one movie. And then there was this company that was just like, what do you normally make in a year? And I told them, they were like, what if we gave you 90% of that and you would only have to work 20 times a year? On average, and if you don't want to share this, that's that's fine. But on average, just from uh, productions of, of videos, what were you making per year? Between two hundred and fifty and $275,000 a year. Okay. And were there other things that you did within that time that you made more money or did you just live life outside of making film? There were several opportunities to to do stuff like that. Like there were like clubs that would pay you an appearance fee. There was like toy companies that would, you know, just, they would, you know, have you come on set and just take pictures with them. And all of a sudden, like, I'm assuming adult toys. Not- yeah. Yeah. Like adult toys or lube or um, stuff like that. And then, and then there's that, that whole other much darker side of, you know, escorting and like escorting could be, you know, you, someone flies you to, you know, their bungalow and you're going to like serve them drinks in your underwear, like while they're hosting a party or it'll go as far as, you know, the money will allow. But that is where there is a lot, a lot of money to be made. And that was, that was something I w- that I wasn't like, I didn't really know about until towards the end of my career. I did some of it, but I had no idea it was what it was. I'm talking like, here's 50K to come, you know, hang out with me for a day and then leave. But was it actually hanging out or were there expected to be certain benefits? So honestly, like sometimes like it was based on like how comfortable you were. Gotcha. So tell me about the day that you decided it's all over. I'm not doing this anymore. I had just done a few scenes and like generally like I, I preferred it to be like, if I was going to work, I would just like, I would do like my shoots in the same week. And like that way, like, you know, cause I would work generally like a few times a month and that would be it. Like once or twice a month would be what I would do. I just finished working and I had my checks. Like, you know, like they would, the way my contract worked is, you know, they would cut me a payroll check every time I did a scene. And then at the, at the end of the year, they would, you know, compensate me for whatever else. But I was going to cash those checks and I had gotten to a place where I was so ashamed and like felt so broken by the things I was doing that I had isolated myself from everyone. So I'd stopped answering my mom's calls. I stopped answering my brother's texts, my Facebook and my Instagram and my, well, my Facebook and my Twitter, like. It wasn't like me, like it was this, it was like, it was my stage name. I literally didn't talk to anyone in any capacity for about a year. They called me my real name. They said Joshua, like no, not one person. And I was at a bank and I was depositing these checks and the transaction was over and um, I had my receipt and I took about two steps away. And this lady says, excuse me, um, Joshua, is there, is there anything I can do to help you? Is there anything else I can do for you? And it was just weird because the transaction was over and I had everything. 
it was just so strange to, for her to say that she can, can she help me? Like, it just made no sense to me. And where I was living, um, the bank was basically across the street. So I just walked there and I was walking back and like, it gives me chills just thinking about it, but I just couldn't stop thinking about her saying my name and asking me if she could help me. And I was like, why would she ask me that? And I just kept saying that like over and over in my head. I was like, why would she ask me that? And then I kept thinking like, she called me Joshua. My name's Joshua. Like she called me Joshua and just, I don't know. It was just like, I'm glad that there wasn't like a lot of traffic because I probably would have walked straight into it. I was just like, so in my head. And I walked into the, into the lobby where I was living and got in the elevator and went to my, uh, went to my apartment. And as soon as I walked in the door, I just like started to cry. And then I like, kind of like shook it off. And then I, I was going to take my watch off and um, changing clothes. And I looked myself in the mirror and I just lost it because the person that I saw in the mirror, I did not know that guy. I had no idea who that guy was. And I just began to feel guilty. And I felt conviction for what I was doing for the first time in a very long time. To be honest, Brian, like what allowed me to do like the films that were, you know, in the gay genre, like the, those films, it didn't like affect me to do them. It was, and it was honestly the same thing is like they were women that I don't want to speak poorly of them, but just like this, this was not someone that I would want to engage in any activity with. You know what I mean? Like there was no attraction whatsoever. So I had become so intimately and emotionally numb like nothing mattered to me like nothing like myself or anyone else so a handshake or sex was exactly the same to me and because it was my job to be able to engage in that activity I could do it no problem without a regret in the world because how I looked at myself like this is who I am like literally that it's not what I do. This is like, this is how I provide money for myself. This is what validates me. This is what I do because this is what, this is who I am. And that's what I believe. And when I heard my name, it just crushed my reality because all of a sudden I saw myself as a person. Right. And we talk about in psychology a lot, the power of the name that we're not what we've done. We are an individual and our past doesn't define who we are, but in society today, it, it's so much more than, you know, being who we are as to what we've been done. I've been in several of your live streams where you just have people pour in and ask you to say the famous line of yours, which is it's not a beach. It's a bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> and some days I've, I've been on there and people are just so grotesque and, and horrible and, and say things that are just outlandish. And I can say as seeing you on the other end of that live, that it does still affect you in a lot of ways that it does kind of pull you down, but there is power in knowing who we are. And so that was that kind of transitional moment when someone said your name that you came out of this delusion of the person that you portrayed and then became who you were. How did the, I guess, would you call them agents or companies that you worked for? How did they take with you just saying, okay, I'm done? Yeah, it, it went really poorly because I was in a really large contract and, and there was, it wasn't like I'm supposed to be at work tomorrow and we can't get someone to cover for them. You know, like 
their entire company was designed around marketing and promoting me. Because of the way the industry works and because of the amount of content they did, they did that still, but I wasn't there to provide them any new content. But it was a very hard conversation and it cost me a lot of money. But like, I just picked up the phone. And I was like, I'm not coming. You know, I know I'm supposed to be here, you know, in a few days or whatever, but I'm not going to be there. And they were like, are you not feeling well? Like, what's going on? I'm like, I'm done. And they're like, well, you just can't quit. You know, you, you're under you're under contract. You're not like, you're not, there's not just like somewhere you're supposed to be. Like, you are legally and financially obligated to do certain things or, you know, you're going to have to like, you know. That's, that sounds a lot like prostitution. It is. If I could articulate something more clearly, that it, it is exactly that. It is glamorized prostitution, and it, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that there's people that say, oh, gosh, I want to do that. At the same time, you believe the lie that OnlyFans or guys paying you to send nudes or anything along those lines is any different. Because every time you give a piece of yourself away, it affects you. It affects your soul. And it's something you have to carry with you. I remember being seven, eight years old and going to a friend's house. And his dad had a Playboy collection that was from God knows how far back. And I remember, distinctly remember, the first piece of pornography that I, I viewed that day in that guy's garage as an innocent child. And I, I think that people don't stop and, and realize that what you are viewing is going to be with you for a lifetime. And what what you have done, I'm sure I, I'm going to speak out of turn here and you can tell me if I'm wrong or not, but I'm sure that there are times when you close your eyes at night and you're taken back to that day on a particular scene of something that has taken you back to that place. And you have to remind yourself I'm Joshua. I'm not that person. So to be completely transparent, though, um, since like since I've had like really hard conversations with my wife and just really took it to God, that was the biggest miracle in my life. It's, it's almost like men in black type thing. Like I carry the emotional damage, but like the particulars and the, the scenes, we, we can get into this if you want, but like like almost like in a, um, a masochist behavior type way, after I got out of the industry, I would watch my own scenes so I could remember them, but like not in a good way, you know, like, don't do that again. This is where you were. And then obviously, you know, that, that would lead for me looking at it for five minutes to looking at it for, you know, who knows how long. Still to this day, like there's certain aspects, but like people ask me, like, do you remember like certain like nuance, like, like what, like you remember stuff about that day? Like, I don't know if it's because I'm like such an emotional or like mental, like wreck from it, but it's either really, really suppressed or God did a miracle. And I, that's just not something that I recall. Gotcha. So you don't have like certain triggers or things that take you back to the mindset of those, those days. So the mindset, yes. So like the lust mindset. Yes. So I'm, I'm very easily triggered sexually, especially like I didn't really go through the process of like healing to the, to the level that I should have. So for a long time, like if I saw like sex, like on like, not even a movie, but like TV show, it, it would trigger me. And I was like, I, and like, for me, I found that like, 
I got angry. Like I was like, it put me in a bad mood and my response was like to be angry and to be like frustrated. So now moving into, uh, you mentioned, uh, your wife, how did she, I'm going to assume that she didn't know you were a porn star when you met. Is that, is that right? Yeah. She had, she had no idea. She's as, she's as precious and clueless to things like that as they come just to backtrack a little bit. So what was the most painful time for me was when I had to, f- to feel the pain that I caused myself. And that was when I removed myself from the industry. So there was two, there was two years after I got out of the industry that I was lying to every single person I met about everything, like why I was in California, what I did. And, and even to the level where I was lying about my situation with my dad, because like I had so much shame, like there's, I was like, I don't want to tell anyone that like that also. So I just like would make up stories about him for two years. Like I would, I would just try to sweep as much of my past underneath the rug as possible and just like not confront it. But it would all like, especially at the time, like, especially because like of like late like when used to be like skinamax and like showtime like all those movies would they would show like like soft porn at night like most of those movies come from like they do like softcore versions of the movies that i did and i was in all of them it was impossible for me to hide so you didn't disassociate your character from you at that point in time you carried all the guilt and shame from the character and yourself together oh yeah okay so you you didn't just go home and say oh i was an actor in california and i i did a couple of films that didn't really amount to anything that was one of the stories and they were like well why were you out there so long and i was like well you know it's whatever because yeah. i'm really good at doing bad film that's why i was out there so long yeah and but like it would it would come up it would come up and like there was a gym that I was working at. So I, I started personal training. Um, I, I'd always loved fitness and I got into CrossFit and I was working like at a CrossFit gym and I didn't tell them about my past. And then it came, it came up and luckily they, they're just, um, they are amazing people. And they gave me a chance when I didn't deserve one. Cause I, li- I'd lied, you know, about my past to them. I feel like in certain capacities, like, Full disclosure is important in that regard because of when you're leading people. I, I think, I think that's important. I think integrity is important. So, I was not having integrity in that point in my life, and I didn't tell them that. And they could have fired me, but they didn't. But there were several relationships and opportunities that fell apart because I wasn't upfront, especially like trying to date. It just wasn't working out. Like it was like it would always come up and then it's like, I don't want anything to do with that. I think you're cool and all, but no thanks. And then I met this girl and we were supposed to go on this run on Easter and we're going to, we're supposed to go for a run. I do not like running. I like sprinting, but like a leisurely, you know, five mile stroll, not my cup of tea, but I thought that she was awesome and I was going to do it. And when I got there, I just felt this like, weight that I just could not shake. It's like, you got to tell her, you got to tell her, you got to tell her. And I was like, might as well tell her because she's just going to find out and then like ditch me like everyone else. So I might as well just save her the heartache and me the embarrassment. So before we started, I was like, Hey, I got to tell you something. I did a few like adult movies. She's like, what do you mean? I was like, porn. I, I did porn. She was like, a movie? I'm like, no, a thousand. 
And then, I, and then I, I went into like detail and told her things that like, she definitely did not want to know. But I was like, at that point, like, I don't even know if she was listening at that point, but it's like, I, I was just like unloading years of baggage. You know, I, like for me, it was like a therapy session. I was just like, let me tell you how bad I am. After I told her how bad I was, her response was, uh, do you know who God is? And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I know who God is. I, I believe that he made me and everything else. I'm like, sure. You know, I, I know who God is. So would you have a relationship with him? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, what, like, what do you mean by relationship? She's like, what do you have a relationship with him? Like, do you trust him? I was like, and then like she said, like, like we had a, a, a little bit more of a conversation about it, but she kind of like left that at, like left it at that. Just really like told me like how good he was. And like, you know, just like said stuff that I'd heard before about Jesus, you know, like, okay. You know, and we just like ended up just like walking and talking and she was asking me about like, she is very, very close with her family. So she was asking me about like, you know, what's, what's my mom like? What's my brother like? And all of a sudden, like I was having the first normal conversation I'd had in probably 10 years. Like it wasn't, Oh, tell me about the industry. What was that like? Or like, Oh gosh, you've done that. Or what, you know, what were you thinking when you did that? Like it was did just that scare you in some ways. Absolutely. 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 I honestly, Brian, like I had, it took me a while to really like relearn how to interact with people like in a normal way. I mean, I felt, I felt like I was that dude in Tropic Thunder. I was like, I was a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. Like that's who I was. I mean, I was literally a guy playing a person with this other name who was portraying whoever I was that day. Like that's who I was every single day. I especially like it when I was like for the first five years of my career or the first like four and a half or whatever, I was doing like 25, 30 movies a month. Literally this was, I was doing every day and it was like, you walk on set and then you sign this paperwork and then all of a sudden you just, you just walk on a set and you're, you know, you might know your lines and they might know yours, but you might not know that person, but it's, you know, it became so, unnatural and i think that's why it's so harmful because it portrays sexuality and intimacy and even like human interaction in a way that is so far from what is true but yeah it terrified me it terrified me to like have a truthful conversation why because i was humiliated at who i was and i was insecure about like who is the real me heck man i I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And she was asking these questions. She just like talked to me and like treated me in a way that like, I couldn't ever remember like being talked to. Would it be fair to say that she talked to you like you were a human? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, she treated me like I had value, you know? Yeah. And so just kind of wrapping this up in a nutshell, cause we'll get into more particulars, uh, and doc talks DX, uh, but you are now pastoring a church. I am. So you have gone from being a porn star to pastor, which you're writing a book with a, a similar title. Is that correct? Yeah. Prodigal porn star is the title. Prodigal yep. porn star. I like that. How do you, uh, and, and, and we'll get more into this in the DX side, but what would you say to the individual right now who is suffering from an addiction to pornography? I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of things I would like to say, but just understanding that that is a person on the other side of that screen and it's not an object. And so I was watching a documentary last night 
and it was about a prison in South Africa and 45% of the crimes committed in the city was rape. And they asked someone why. And over and over again, the answer was that they don't have as much value as men. And they believe that that's something that they owe them. So they should be able to take it from them. So when you watch pornography, you're saying there's people on the other side of the screen don't have as much value as anyone else. So you're going to choose to use them like objects. And that's, that does something to you. That does something to you because um, you start to treat people different. You start to see people different. And it's incredibly, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can, you can dig deep into that, but it's, it's incredibly emotional and mentally damaging for you. And you're just ingraining this truth that someone owes you something and you don't have to do anything, you know, to, to earn it per se. And those, those, pe- those are people, those are people on that screen, you know, and they're, they're going through something. And, and a lot of people will say, well, this person still does it and they're really happy and successful. Let me trust you, friend. No, no one in the world wants to uh, prostitute themselves on the internet where everyone can see. So if that person could go back and do something else and be successful, a hundred percent of the people would choose that because no one wants to do that. Sure. You might have success. Sure. You might have a little bit of money in your pocket, but no one wants to do that. And you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a catalyst behind every action like that. And, and it all starts with a lie that this is not going to hurt me. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for listening to Doc Talks Today. I'm Doc Brian. And as we go into the diagnosis part of this, you can find that episode on Patreon, uh, where we talk about the diagnosis of people in the porn industry and how it affects us in our mental health. Uh, Joshua, once again, thank you for being with us today. Tell all of our listeners where they can find you. Uh, so the best place you can find me is on Instagram or TikTok, and it's joshua.broom is uh, where, you can, where you can find me. And that's with the E, B-R-O-O-M-E. Yeah, the E is important. Okay, yeah, I got to put the E on there. Uh, Joshua, I appreciate you sharing your story with us today, and I know that it it's not always easy to be vulnerable uh, and discuss these things. Um, but he will be with us on the second part here, as you'll find on Patreon on Doc Talks DX. Of course, you can find me at thedocbrian.com. Uh, all of my social media links are there at the bottom of the website. Make sure to check out the second part uh, once again on Doc Talks DX and Patreon. And Doc Talks is a part of the B Frank Network, which you can find at bfranknetwork.com. Again, thank you for listening today. Goodbye. <laughs>